find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hey, fellow truth seekers, I'm Justin. And I'm Brandy. And together, we'll be your guides on this spine-tingling journey through the unknown. We dive headfirst into the eerie realms of cryptids, from Bigfoot to Loch Ness Monster. And hold on tight, because we'll explore spine-chilling encounters with extraterrestrial beings and UFO sightings that will leave you questioning what's really out there. Beyond the Shadows is not your average paranormal podcast. Our goal is simple to shed light on the shadows that haunt our world and confront the unexplained with an open mind. And for the skeptics, don't worry, we have something for you too. Our conspiracy theories will challenge your beliefs and make you question everything. So if you're fascinated by the paranormal, yearn for chilling true crime stories, or crave the adrenaline rush of uncovering conspiracies, join us on this hair-raising adventure as we journey beyond the shadows. Everybody, welcome back to my second self and I. I am your well-meaning but often nonsensical host, Matt. One of the nonsensical things I do on this show is also being my own co-host. That's Alex. Hello. He's one of the many other voices in my head just floating around in there, and he's kind of here just because I can't get rid of him, so I figured why not just write him into the show. This month of September is going to be a very exciting month on the pod. If you listened last week to Ivan Milat and the Backpacker Murderers, you already know we're going around the world in 30 days. We're doing a month's worth of international murders, or if you don't live where I live, things that didn't happen in America. So international to me, at least. Where are we going today? Well, you know me, it's hard for me to sit still for very long. I'm shaking my leg in anticipation of I have no idea what right now. I have a lot of energy and things I want to try to get done. One of those things I want to get done eventually is travel the world and actually go see some cool shit. A computer screen and an overactive imagination can only take you so far. That being said, those two things have taken me pretty far so far, and I seem to be figuring it out pretty well, so... I say we keep plugging away with my favorite thing to do in my free time, and maybe we'll learn some cool shit on the way to wherever we are going, which today is Canada. Ooh, does their money really smell like maple syrup? Alex, I'm glad you're here today. I knew you were going to ask that. Fuck no, it doesn't. Some people say they can smell it, but bank officials across the board deny it, because why the hell would they do that? Apart from coke addicts, who would ever smell their money? Like, no, I've never once sniffed a dollar bill of mine, and no one's ever been like, Hey, does this 20 smell weird? Like, if someone ever asks you to sniff test their money, run away in the other direction immediately. Like, whatever it does smell like, you don't want that. You don't want to be a part of that. Okay, so back to reality. Most of us have heard of the big American serial killers, Gacy, Camper, BTK, Dahmer, the Green River Killer, all of those guys. You know most of them. But I don't know a whole lot about Canadian serial killers, except for maybe Robert Picton, but I don't know if I could do his story in a half hour. I'm trying to keep this around a certain time, and that guy was pretty busy. Today we're going to be talking about a man named Gilbert Paul Jordan, and he has one of the most unique, quote, weapons for a murder story that we've ever seen. Even more unique than the wood chipper. We had that twice on this show, but nobody we've talked about on this show has ever killed people the way he did. 
We'll go ahead and get started in just a second, but I wanted to throw out a little disclaimer for any new listeners. This is a comedy show. I am going to be telling you a true story. This crazy shit actually went down, but I do take some creative liberties in the storytelling department to make the stuff around the murders as funny as I can, because I think that makes it a more fun way to learn about something otherwise horrible. Jokes, music, Alex chiming in randomly, echoes, sound effects, it's all on the table except for stuff at the victim or their families. They had it rough enough without me poking fun at them. We're going to leave them alone, but everything else is fair game. So let's just go ahead and get on with a hopefully hilarious story about a Canadian serial killery. Welcome one and all to Canada, a sprawling nation of beavers, poutine, maple leaves, and just tons and tons of Molson and Labatt Blue keeping the citizens fed and reasonably happy. But Canada's much more than just the goofy memes we see every day about the things I just listed. It also has some really interesting real-life people that used to live there. We're gonna zoom in on the island of Vancouver around 1931. December 12th, to be specific, is when our subject was born. The man we know as Gilbert Paul Jordan was born Gilbert Paul Elsie. He wouldn't actually change his name until much later on in life, trying to throw off some suspicion from some of the many gross and disturbing crimes he liked to commit. I really wish I could afford that newspaper subscription I mentioned a few weeks ago. I had to cancel my trial run. I might have been able to find more on his childhood in a local paper from Vancouver if I did, but alas, I'll have to settle with the regular free internet resources. I don't have much on his childhood, except for, much like Dahmer, he was an established alcoholic at a very early age. He was by age 16 at least. At the same age, he dropped out of high school and pretty much instantly began his downward spiral into a life of disgusting career criminality. But given the time he was born, I think we should take a brief look at the Canadian Great Depression and how it affected Vancouver so we can at least have some context for how he might have been raised. Much like the United States, Canada in 1931 was stifling under an umbrella of economic hardships which put many Canadians out of work, and at least one in five became dependent on government assistance. By 1933, the value of all products manufactured in British Columbia had been roughly halved of what it was in 1929, just four years ago, as well as individual income, seeing a drop from $600 to around $350 a month. I think that's a monthly figure, anyway. All around him for his entire childhood is nothing but depressingly long lines of sad people trying to get just a little bit of food for the family, or another equally long yet angry line of protesters against the latest political decision. And anywhere in between could be a shanty town of new homeless just trying to keep out of the elements and that's how many people were raised. People also would have been overly protective of what little things they had access to, so the overall vibe would be this uncomfortable mixture of tension, anger, sadness, and hope. It's no surprise that under all those conditions, somebody during this time would wind up as one of the violent history makers from the slums of Vancouver's east side. So we're going to fast forward a little bit through the remainder of the Depression and past World War II and land somewhere in the middle of the baby boom in 1952. By then, he's already racked up a long list of convictions, including rape, indecent assault, abduction, hit and run, drunk driving, and car theft. He's 21. That is a busy kid. He Guy. He's a busy guy. That is a lot of stuff for a 21-year-old to have already been convicted of. However, given his powerful addiction to alcohol, none of that really surprises me. Here's the thing about alcoholics. If you've had any experience handling an alcoholic, you know that, in their minds, the ends always justify the means, and the means usually get minimized later on. Here's what I mean. 
Let's say you're in a relationship with a person that likes to drink. A lot. At some point, you're gonna have an altercation with that person that was spurred on by them drinking themselves into oblivion and doing something really, really stupid. It's not like the scenes in the movies where the husband ties one on a little too hard at his reunion or bachelor party or some shit and then does something stupid like jump off the roof into a pool and misses and breaks his ankle or jumps into a freezing lake on a dare and then his wife's mad at him for being a drunk dipshit for a couple hours. Not like that. No. The altercation I'm talking about is something more like this. You make plans to have a fancy dinner with your significant other one night because you haven't had a date night in a while, work sucks, and you want to just get out and with just each other for a, just one night for a couple hours. Instead, you get home from a long day of dealing with idiot customers and three call-ins making your day that much busier to find your significant other passed out on the couch to the point that you can't even wake him up. Now you're pissed, as rightfully you should be, but the drunk dipshit on the couch over there just gets to sleep it off and deal with it later because it was all in pursuit of a good time. They'll apologize, I was drunk, I didn't mean it, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. And then it happens again and again and again, and the actual problem never gets solved with anything beyond a hollow apology. Because somewhere at the core of that day's schedule of events was the thought, I want to have a good time. And given the opportunity, an alky's going to do what they do best, which is alky, eh, drink. Now take that person and make them an aggressive, violent, and unpredictable criminal with a Friar Tuck haircut and Professor Farnsworth glasses, and you've got our subject today, Mr. Gilbert. He'd later acquire the moniker of Boozing Barber from one of the papers covering his actions. He learned the basics of barbary from someone on the inside during one of his frequent vacations to the Pokey, the Big House, the Clink, Slammer, Hooskow, Jug, Tollbooth, Dungeon, Joint, Brig, all the words for jail. He knew all of them because he was in there so often there's no way he couldn't know them. He'd use the knowledge he learned on the inside to weasel his way into opening up a barbershop on Kingsway Avenue called the Slocan Barbershop. I say weaseled because I'm sure there was something shady going on for a career criminal to be able to procure a brick and mortar building for a personal business. He came into some money in the form of an inheritance around this time too, so maybe he could have used that to open up the shop. I'm just not positive which thing happened first. He used at least a portion of the inheritance to invest in the stock market though. That turned out to be a smart move for him because... Regardless of how he acquired the space, it would later end up as a crime scene for, I think, four of his victims, and he'd use his investment's future payoff to hire a fancy lawyer. So he's a well-established criminal alcoholic by now, steadily drinking 50 ounces of vodka every day, and having sex with up to 200 prostitutes a year. That's like 16 women a month, four times a week. That's how do you get to that kind of a figure? Seems like you'd lose track of something like that eventually, right? Yeah, but I guess if you're drinking 50 ounces of straight vodka every day, at some point you're just not gonna give a shit anymore. Like, after an almost half gallon of hooch, I'd probably just throw out a ballpark figure, like, uh, Probably somewhere... 30... 200, that sounds good. Let's get some burritos. That is a disgusting way to live, holy shit. That's almost a half gallon of liquor every day, holy sh- All the burping and hot shits and just general feeling like a walking bag of bruised assholes every day? And the withdrawal twitches, my god, the twitches, just, ugh. That's, that was the worst part. That's such an awful way to drag yourself through a given day. I don't miss it at all, and that's his baseline. That is insane to me, ew. 
And on top of carrying himself like that, he also says some really disturbing things, as you might expect from a criminal alcoholic. Things like, quote, Sober people wouldn't go out with me, so I didn't have much option. I didn't want to drink in a room all by myself. If you've ever said that as a justification for a shitty personality trait, i.e. drinking, might want to reevaluate some stuff in your life. And once again, within that quote from his trial there, we see that we see that ends justify the means point of view. He's minimizing his actions and rejecting blame as well as personal responsibility. He's been on a steady upward trend of increasingly violent crimes, and in 1961, he was charged with abduction. Again. After a five-year-old indigenous girl was discovered in his car. I guess he just left her there while he went to go get hammered one day, and the police found her in there alive, thank goodness, but probably scared shitless. He was charged with abduction, but for somehow never convicted of anything. She was in his car. How the fuck did he get out of that? Dude, I... It's infuriating, and I'm gonna throw out some numbers in a little while that are gonna piss you off even more, too. Oh, lovely. That was early 1961, but by Christmas, he's had an abrupt change of heart. Egged on by the overwhelming loneliness of being an alcoholic with no family around the holidays, he's decided a few days before the new year, you know what? I've had enough of this world and all you sober fucks. I'm out of here. And he threatens to jump off the Lion's Gate Bridge. Hey, Alex, how many alcoholics does it take to paint a sidewalk? How many? It depends on how high he jumps from. Oh. Oh! <laughs> this motherfucker held up traffic on the longest suspension bridge in Western Canada for hours due to his attempted suicide. I feel like this was kind of just a ploy for attention because his hookers were out of town or some other shit or some weird drunk line of reasoning. Like, if I was there, I probably would have shouted at him, like, do a flip on the way down. Then he doubles down on himself. After this, he's in court shortly after, probably for disturbing the peace or some other stuff, whatever. He, and who knows who he might have assaulted on the way to his jump site. This guy's creepy and gross. He's held in contempt and re-arrested once again in court because turns out he's also a goddamn Nazi and was throwing up Heil Hitler salutes in court. What the fuck, man? There are way too many layers to this friggin' guy. He's like an onion. Peeling back the layers of a murderously indecent alcoholic Nazi barber. <laughs> I think that has to be the name of this episode now. And yes, murderously is a word. Actually, he's not quite a murderer yet. That doesn't happen until 1965. But he does catch a couple more rape and theft charges in 1963 after trying to pick up a couple more women to go drinking with him in the red light district. Oddly enough, he's charged with the theft, but not the rape somehow so now he knows he can kind of get away with rape if the conditions are right for him but let's see how he escalates this new pattern of behavior but first we have to take a very short break to hear from the ad sponsors that i may or may not have made up this week we are so grateful you chose remote coastal adventures for all your travel needs if you're looking for new strange and amazing sights to see rca has you covered for even the most scenic of getaways we take you along the coast of Vancouver Island for an unforgettable series of breathtaking views. You can see gulls in the bay, bears in the streams, salmon jumping in and out of that same stream. Look, that one just got eaten. You might also see a Bigfoot or two peeking in and out of the numerous patches of blurry forests. From there we take you down the one road through the mountains all the way to the end of Tree to Sea Drive to a town called Tossus. We recommend getting a bite to eat at Sally's. We've heard she's a nice lady. 
And from there, it's just a short dinghy ride south past the Blowhole Strait to Seth Williams Rock. Vapors will be happy to know that, according to one noble reviewer, you can restock your supply of disposable cancer pods. Seth Williams Rock is also just a short ride away from our final destination, Strange Island. What goes on here must be strange indeed, as anyone who leaves the island is forbidden from ever speaking about what happens there. So from all of us here at RCA, we thank you for choosing us as your travel guides. RCA, keeping Canada strange. Okay, we are back to the real world again. All of those places I just said and that vape review is 100% real, by the way. If you look up Seth Williams Rock on Google Maps, you'll see it. It just says, there is vape here, which is just great. It's so reflective of the times we're in right now. Don't worry, guys. You can get your strawberry guava paws. It's fine. So I've talked a lot about who this guy is and some of the stuff he likes to do, but I haven't talked about that weapon I mentioned back in the beginning. It's not so much a weapon as it is an extension of himself. See, what Mr. Gilbert liked to do was drink and fuck, right? So to that end, he would pick up women, most of them prostitutes, and take them to either a shitty rundown hotel or back to his barber shop on Kingsway. Then when they'd arrive at their destination, he'd start saying super creepy stuff. I want to refer you back momentarily to my recent invention, the quote, list of serial killers who would suck to hang out with, probably. It's an idea I had where I remove just the murders from a serial killer's life and see if they'd still be a cool person to hang out with. I can't imagine many of you would have been volunteering to hang out with this guy anyway by this point in the story, but now add in this long list of creepy pathetic shit that the police actually heard him saying to his victims. Have a drink. Down the hatch, baby. I'll give you 20 bucks if you drink it down. See, if you're a real woman, you finish that drink. Finish that drink. Down the hatch. Hurry. Right down. You need another drink. I'll give you 50 bucks if you can drink it, if you can take it down. And remember that little thing he said earlier? I didn't want to drink in a room all by myself. Think about the tolerance a man like him would have to have. He's been drinking nearly a half gallon of 40 proof every day for the better part of at least the last 10 years, maybe 15. These women that he's picking up are not going to be able to keep up with him for very long. Most people wouldn't be able to. Unless he targeted like an AA meeting or something like that. Those people could hang for a while, I'm pretty sure. But look, my point is, the women he picked up would pass out early on in the evening. Probably just kept drinking to shut him up. You heard the shit he was saying. But drink. eventually, they would pass out. And Pushy McBroomface over there thinks to himself, You don't want to drink in a room all by myself. So he takes the vodka, and I guess a funnel or something close to it, and starts pouring it down her throat. Down the hitch, baby. Why does he do this? You don't want to drink in a room all by myself. I gotta say, in all honesty, I gotta give him at least one point for creativity and uniqueness. I've never heard of a vodka funnel as a way of killing people. But he's still at like negative 600, so he's still setting a pretty low bar, don't worry. How much would it take to kill a person? Okay, so the legal limit for driving is .08. At that point, you're considered drunk or intoxicated. Most people tend to black out somewhere around .20, which would be like a long day of just steady drinking for like eight or nine hours. You wake up, take a shot about every hour, maybe a double every now and then if you like there's a cool show coming on. That'll get you there pretty quick. .02 to .039 is kind of like that first initial burst of chemical energy that you get. All right, let's party! .04 to .059 is a feeling of well-being and relaxed, kind of like if you had a couple beers at lunch and now it's time to just 
go back to work and coast through the rest of Friday. 0.06.099 is a sweet spot that includes slight impairment of balance and speech. This is where your karaoke game is the strongest. And I would walk 500 miles. Come on, Alex, sing along with me. And I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. And then after all the applause, you're at 0.100 to 0.129. You start seeing some pretty significant impairment. I think this is where most responsible drinkers would probably call it a night. A little more than drunk, but still coherent enough to recognize it's gonna be a problem tomorrow morning. This is that level of drunk that your Uber driver starts to worry about you a little bit because they don't want a mess to clean up. Unless you're this guy, you're stopping well before you make it up to 0.25, which is the early stages of alcohol poisoning. It's really difficult to get yourself to that point by yourself if you're not a big drinker. And the first time he gets to do this is on January 17, 1965. His first unfortunate victim is a young lady by the name of Ivy Rose Doreen Oswald. Her naked body was found the next morning in a room at the Lyle Hotel. I found a free newspaper article with some stuff I couldn't find before. It was awesome. Her blood alcohol content was 0.51, more than six times the legal limit for driving. Holy cirrhosis, Matman. She also had bruises on her scalp, nose, lips, and chin, but they were all superficial. The coroner said, quote, there was no evidence of violence or suspicion of foul play, and the death was ruled as accidental. She's a 52-year-old white lady from England with no relatives in Canada, and that's literally all I have on her up until she meets this asshole. Gilbert Paul Elsie was arrested in connection to this, though. His name was found on the room logs that they were staying in, and he had a bunch of her stuff when they found him. But the investigating officer said there just wasn't enough evidence to charge him with anything, and he was released. Okay, now he's definitely a murderer, and he's also about to go file that paperwork to change his name to Gilbert Paul Jordan to throw off the fuzz. You know, I wonder if he continued to use his old name of Elsie to try to throw off suspicion, like... That's still almost the same name, dude. That's not very sneaky. But it is just like an alcoholic steps in logic. They'll never know it's me, but I'll know. They gotta keep it close enough to their own name so they don't forget, but just different enough that it could be a different person. Which might work better if the shit you were doing with the new name wasn't the exact same shit you were doing with the old one, you jackass. So not only would this guy be like the annoying, trying too hard to be popular jock at a frat party pushing booze in everyone's face, he's also one of those guys that isn't very smart but thinks he is. Yeah, for sure not hanging out with pushy McBroomface even, even without him being a murderer. After something like that, and with it being so close of a call, Gilbert opts to lay relatively low for a while, but not so low that we can't take a look at what he's been up to. He still drank just as heavily as he'd been accustomed to, as evidenced by the steadily increasing amount of drunk driving charges between 65 and 69, nice. Then also in 69, not so nice this time, at one point was charged with the same crime twice in the same day. He's setting all kinds of records for us on this show. In 1971, he's busy racking up more charges, starting with acting indecent in a public place, but this was later dismissed. Did he... Did he just whip it out, or was he taking a leak behind a dumpster? 1973, moving right along once again with indecent exposure. Again, not sure if P or his PP. 1974, indecent assault, and sentenced to two years minus a day, so maybe he peed on someone? That's a very indecent assault. Or, going off what we already know, something much worse. They also, that year, in 1974, tried to have him listed as a dangerous offender, but... 
Remember that fancy lawyer he bought with his stock investment money? I think he got a pretty damn good one because that application was denied, so on paper he remains nonviolent. His lawyer must have pulled a few other strings too because Gilbert didn't even do close to the two years for that. In 1975, he's keeping right up with the pace, but this time he abducted a woman from a mental institution somehow. How the fuck did he pull that off? Yeah, this is my stepsister's cousin's brother. I'm here to take her out for lunch today. Like, how the fuck did you figure that out? Either way, he's charged with several counts, including kidnapping and sexual intercourse with a feeble-minded person, and is sentenced to 26 months for this assault. He's racking up all kinds of charges I didn't even know were possible. I've never heard of intercourse with a feeble-minded person as a criminal charge. Really seems like you could just call that rape. I for sure fucking would, but I, maybe they just call it that because it carries a heavier sentence? Like, I'll have to try to look into that later, but he does at least actually do time for this one. He doesn't pop up again in the paper until about 1980. Around November 22nd, 1980, a woman named Mary Laurentia Johnson, age 42, called her sister with some very panicked news. She was certain that somebody had been stalking her and wanted to kill her. Lavana Gentre, her sister, wouldn't take her seriously until it was too late. November 30th, about a week later from that phone call, Mary's dead body was discovered and her blood alcohol was registered at a .34 when she died. That's like a third of your blood. What the hell? Lavana called the police and told them about the phone call, but they dismissed her as being an overbearing sibling. You worry too much. The death was ruled as unnatural, but also accidental, so no further investigation was needed. You're going to see that a lot. I wonder who Mary might have been talking about in that phone call, huh? Perhaps it was a creepy Coke bottle rim glasses wearing sottish? He looks like if you put Danny DeVito hair on Dana Carvey from Master of Disguise. Is he turtly enough? Oh, he's turtly as fuck. You just, you couldn't get any more turtly than this guy, Gilbert, but, um, unfortunately the Turtle Club isn't looking for more murderers. In any case, I'd be willing to bet whoever Mary was talking to on the phone was the same person that was involved with this woman's death a little under a year later in September of 1981. Barbara Ann Pauls, age 27, her body was found in the Glen Aird Hotel after drinking with extreme purpose for about four days leading up to September 11th. Oh shit, don't look up. The coroner, Larry Campbell, concluded she was a chronic alcoholic based on the post-mortem results, and once again, pushy McDrink too much gets away with another sneaky, sneaky murder. At the time of the next woman's death, Mary Doris Johns, age 25, was discovered in Gilbert's barber shop. That shit, like, how did that not send up more red flags that they found people in his barbershop. On July 30th, 1982 is when they found Mary's body. No indication of foul play on her either. It was noted that she had been drinking the night before with a friend, and that said friend had purchased a substantial amount of alcohol. However, the coroner said on this, it is my feeling that she ingested an immense quantity of alcohol without realizing the lethal potentiality of it. I feel like this maybe should have pointed more towards foul play considering her blood alcohol was 0.76 when they found her in Gilbert's barbershop. That's basically double what it would take to kill you, by the way. So how the fuck did she get that way by herself? Her drinking herself to death on accident, which is what they determined happened, kind of feels like the easy answer, doesn't it? Sure, it's possible she could have just chugged an entire handle of Tito's by herself like a true degenerate, but that sounds too good to be true based on the evidence. It's too easy of a solution. And if it's too good to be true, there's probably a catch. Or in this case, it's not true at all. 
And yeah, sure, I know we know that from here where I'm sitting, but I suppose if you're the coroner, you might be looking for any way out of suspecting foul play because this is so out of left field for a murderer to do. But back in the right field, the local coroner's office is staying busy because of what Gilbert's been up to over in the left field. He took a couple years off and doesn't strike again until December 14, 1984, when a woman named Patricia Thomas, age 40, was seen going with him back to his barbershop on the 13th of December. They determined her death was the cause of accidental alcohol poisoning as a result of drinking to the point of blackout, waking up to resume drinking to the point of blackout, then lather, rinse, repeat until morning, and boom, bam, baby bunny, we've got another astounding blood alcohol content of 0.51. I have to reiterate, it's really difficult to get that way by yourself. Do you think there's so much time in between the killings on purpose? Um, yeah, I'm gonna say yes. He seems like he's got just enough sense rattling around in that hooch-riddled brain of his to know that too many people dying in the same way might look suspicious if they happen too close together. Patricia Josephine Andrew, age 45, also met her end in Gilbert's Barbershop another year later on June 28, 1985. She was found naked, of course, and her blood alcohol was so far the highest one yet, 0.79. Her autopsy report showed signs of chronic alcohol abuse to her liver, so once again, we land on an accidental death from the coroner. By the way, all five of those women were members of a native tribe as well, I'm not sure which one, but he's definitely got a type. The next victim is somehow just... This one feels stankier than the other ones to me. I don't know why. We're done in his barber shop. I misspoke earlier. Only three women died in there, not four. It's fine. We're real with ourselves and we learn as we go. Velma Dory Gibbons called her recently estranged husband the day before her body had been discovered. She was living out of the Balmoral Hotel in room 712 as she tried to recover from her dependence on alcohol. The reason for the phone call was to get a ride back to the home that they once shared so she could give their son a birthday present. Unfortunately, at some point the day before, not certain if this is before or after the phone call, she runs into Gilbert. The next day, when her husband Ken can't find her in the lobby where they agreed to meet, he is awfully confused and worried. She sounded quite sober. If she'd been drinking, I wouldn't have picked her up because the kids don't like to be around her. Her body was found in room 315, which is why Ken couldn't find her, wearing nothing but a sweater, a ski jacket, and some socks. Her blood alcohol was 0.63. That's just fucking sad, man. Now that kid's gonna have an awful birthday forever, no present from mom. What happened to mom? What the fuck? Jesus, that poor kid. Our next victim is a little more interesting, though, and a lot less sad. Interesting might not be the best word, but we're gonna go with it. This one doesn't have any crushed promises attached to it anyway. Veronica Norma Harry was found on the floor leaning against the dresser in room 23 of the Clifton Hotel. The bruises on her face at the funeral were kind of out of place, oddly suspect, but they could just be a result of her lifestyle and where she lives. These are some thoughts that Ben Pierce had thought while he was attending the services. But the strangest part was that Gilbert himself was the one that reported the body. Why the hell would he do that? I think to avoid suspicion for her death. I don't know if he did this with all of them or not, but at least here he arrived at the Vancouver police station with his fancy lawyer to report the death and told them they'd been binge drinking for two days. Since the room was rented in his name, he wanted to make sure her death was ruled as accidental based on his story, and it looks like it worked once again. Here we are all the way up to October 12th, 1987 with Vanessa Lee Buckner, age 27. This is the part of the serial killer story where they fuck up bad enough that the police start to catch on to what they're doing. 
This poor girl was an occasional prostitute, but seemed to be on the upswing recovering from drug addiction and had recently become a mother. Her parents were both fairly successful, had good smart heads on their shoulders. Her mom was a psychiatric nurse and her father owned a construction firm. That's why when her blood alcohol was reported as .91, holy fucking shit, they were instantly suspicious. I would have been too. Her father had spoken to her that day and he said, it just didn't seem right. She phoned me that day around 1.30 and she seemed really good. She was talking about the baby. She didn't seem sad or depressed at all that day. Buckner's parents pressed the police to look into this further, but there was no coroner's report ever issued. We'll come back around to that in just a minute. And finally, we come to the last victim that we know anything about, Edna Marie Shade, age 53. Just a couple of weeks later, on November 9th, she died at the hands of probably Gilbert that day with a blood alcohol of only .12, which leads me to believe something went wrong with this one. She lived in the Beacon Hotel in room 7, and her body was found, of course, naked. But don't forget about the important work the Buckner family has been doing. They're pressing the police to look into Vanessa's death, and they started coming up with some inconsistencies. I think this is why the coroner report was never filed. Normally, before a person would make it to a .91 blood alcohol content, they would vomit it back up, and it wouldn't be absorbed. Since the legal limit for driving was .08, and the minimum lethal limit was .35, Foul play was therefore suspected, finally, and they begin watching Gilbert a lot, 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 lot more closely. Here's the thing if you're going to murder somebody. Obviously, obviously don't do this, but if you're going to call in an anonymous tip on somebody that you've killed, don't do it from a landline. Maybe he did report the other ones too. Either way, use a payphone, and for fuck's sake, wear gloves or use a fake name. The police traced the anonymous phone call reporting a body to the Marble Arch Hotel, which was where Gilbert was living. Then when Edna Shade was found dead in the Beacons Hotel, they checked for fingerprints around the room and... <gasps> guess what? They found a bunch that belonged to Gilbert inside the room. And with Buckner's case already being determined as foul play... A body Gilbert also pointed the police to. They're pretty sure they have a suspect now. So they watched him for four days, and over the course of doing that, saved four more women, all natives, from being horribly murdered by this jerk-off. All the while, he's saying all those same creepy things from earlier. Down the hitch, baby. Those four women that they saved that made it out safely were Rosemary Wilson, Verna Chartrand, Sheila Joe, and Mabel Olson, all between November 20th and the 25th. He had a four-day, five-day window of just trying again, but the police were on to him now, so they didn't get away with it. Rosemary and Verna had a blood alcohol content of 0.43 and 0.52, respectively, when they were rescued, but Gilbert was finally arrested while attempting to poison his last victim. He was on top of her, forcing the rest of a giant vodka bottle down her throat. I think that was Mabel Olson. So he's finally arrested, but we're going to fast forward to trial time sometime around 1988 because I don't have any more details between here and now. And uh, Alex, here are those numbers I said earlier that are going to piss you off even more. He was linked to 10 deaths total, charged with 7, but only convicted of one charge which carried a 15-year sentence. And if that doesn't piss you off enough, he also successfully appealed his sentence to get it reduced to 9 years and then only served 6 years total. Not even for murder. It was a manslaughter charge on top of all that. He murdered at least 10 women in one of the most horrible ways I've ever heard of and did less than 10 years. On reducing the sentence, Justice Sam Troy said, 
Although the appellant has left a trail of seven victims, the last was the first occasion when persons in authority, in a forceful and realistic manner, brought to the appellant's attention the fact that supplying substantial quantities of liquor to women who were prepared to drink with him was a contributing cause of their deaths for which he might be held criminally responsible. That doesn't really tell me anything. Yeah, we totally think he killed at least seven, but we didn't have enough to go on until the last victims. Um, such a non... That doesn't tell me anything, Justice Sam Troy. Serving six years for manslaughter. That's a fucking ridiculous amount of time to serve for everything we just talked about. So that's going to put us right around 1994 when he gets out. So he's got six years of dodging probation violations and additional jail time between then and the next amount of info I have on him. So 88, jail time, 94, somehow already out of jail time. Between 94 and 2000, he's just in and out of jail dodging probation violations, and whatever other bullshit he's got going on. Seems unlikely that he wouldn't have tried to kill anyone during that time. He basically just got a slap on the wrist, and he probably still has that good lawyer. Gilbert tries to change his name to Paul Pierce in 2000 because that matters at this point, and also at the time it didn't require a fingerprint or background check somehow. So authorities quickly close the loophole and he drops his application. Gilbert Paul Jordan, he remains. Also in 2000, he's acquitted of a sexual assault charge, unsure if that's before or after the attempted name change. A few months later, he's charged once again with sexual assault and administering a noxious substance, A.E. alcohol, A.E. How about I.E., Matt? Come on, man. All charges were dropped there as well. I promise I'm a competent host. 2002, he's landed himself back in jail again because he was... Alex, can you guess what he was doing? Was he drinking? Quite heavily! And in the presence of another woman. This fucking guy just doesn't quit. That one he is sentenced to 15 months for, followed by three months of probation. I know this is a long episode. It's gone on way longer than I meant for it to. Thanks for hanging in there, but we're almost done. He was released from jail, but it wouldn't be too long before he gets his engine running again. In 2004, he's arrested for violating his probation again for binge drinking with Barbara Berkeley. He likes Barbaras. A long-term resident of the hotel and a known alcoholic. She was taken to the hospital by one of her friends, and she recovered just fine. Don't worry, she's okay. But Gilbert was also acquitted of that. He has a long list of horrible and violently disturbing things that he's basically either gotten away with or barely punished for at all. Remember when he got in more trouble for holding up traffic trying to kill himself than he did for having a goddamn toddler in his car? This fucking guy. What a crazy-ass story. I bet you'd have been yelling for him to do a flip now, too, that you know all of what we know. But it doesn't matter how lucky he used to be in life, because in July 26, he fucking died. Oops. Sorry, buddy. I can't find how he died, but... I really hope somebody snuck in while he was sleeping, took a funnel, rammed it down his throat, opened a bottle of white lightning, and then bashed his skull in with a heavy, heavy lamp. That moonshine is for that person to drink after, and maybe burn the evidence away after. I'm obviously just kidding, calm down. We all know a body wouldn't burn at that temperature. So there you have it, everybody. The boozing barber, Gilbert Paul Jordan. As disgusting an individual as we've ever had on this show. The, the murderously indecent Nazi barber is no more. Thank goodness that fucking guy isn't walking around anymore. He only did six years for manslaughter. That is fucking crazy. I'm sorry I keep yelling today, it's just... 
all around me is construction and nonsense and loud stuff coming from outside, so it's putting me in a fun energy thing where I gotta just get out the extra energy from having to hold back from pausing from floorboards creaking or hammers from the next room over. That's an insane story. It just kept getting crazier and crazier. But I want to talk about something really important really quickly before we go. I'm going to put on my serious hat for just a second. Like 60% serious hat. This episode was fueled by my own relationship with alcohol. That's where a lot of my script writing came from today. If you've listened to me from the beginning, you know I'm not shy about sharing that part of my life with you guys. Something I think that should be out there instead of stuff down inside where no one else can see it. So this story kind of had me reflected on some stuff and as you might expect, I just want to say to anybody who might be struggling with something similar, if you are struggling with an addiction, don't be afraid to ask for some help. There's nothing wrong with that. And it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You just have to be in your right mind enough to recognize that. Luckily, I only ever really hurt myself. I guess if you can call that lucky. Not other people. But being able to recognize a fault within yourself is the first step. My point is, it's possible to figure out a better way to get through life if you just dedicate yourself to finding that path. Expose yourself to new perspectives and ways of thinking about your problems could be very helpful to you. Also... Better help. Uh, what's up? Please sponsor the show? Alright, I think that's going to be enough for me today to wrap up this episode. If you like that story or just like how I tell stories, please do me a favor and also all of your other favorite podcasts. Do us all a huge favor. Rate this show five stars on iTunes or wherever you can do that. That really, it really does help. That makes this show pop up in front of more people's players or feeds or whatever you want to call it. It just means that more people have the opportunity to listen to me and their other crazy shows that you like. Or better yet, if you can't do that, if you want your friends to listen to the same show that you listen to so you can have something to talk about next week, tell them about it. Word of mouth works incredibly well for this platform or for anyone who actually gives a shit about podcasts. I feel like not everybody's there yet, but we're heading that direction. So tell more people, if nothing else. It's Word of mouth works well. Or if you happen to be one of those people that aren't really into pods and you've somehow made it this far in the episode, thank you for sticking around. Maybe you can tell me what kept you sticking around today over at Second Self Podcast on Instagram. Or the show also has an email address you can direct all your other love letters to, which is mysecondselfnightgmail.com. But that's going to be all from me today, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my show. It really does mean a lot that I have anybody listening to me try to make a murder story funny. Hopefully I've done that for you. If you like what you heard today, you can listen to me try again next week. But until then, make smart choices and stay kind to everybody. Bye!